And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. Continuing our reading through the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis chapter 37. And we'll take up this morning verses 1 through 11. Lend your attention, this is God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bound down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. We can turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. We mentioned last week that the substance of the teaching of what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps one of the most famous teachings in all of Scripture, uh, the content... Uh, comes to a close at verse 12. And then for the rest of chapter 7, the Lord uh, exhorts his hearers to respond rightly. Um, the Lord's words are not just to be heard. They are to be heeded. Uh, what the Lord calls us to is to be taken seriously. And so we come to verse 13. This is God's word. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Grant to us, O Lord, that we might hear your word this day and uh, take it into uh, the very uh, center of our being. 
that you might prepare our hearts uh, to receive of this word, attending your word with the Holy Spirit and uh, enabling us to receive it, not as the word of man, but as uh, your word, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has come down unto us and continues to uh, reverberate, Lord, through the centuries. How good you are and that you've spoken, how good you are that you've not left us to destruction. But we do pray, Father, that we would heed your word, that we would hear it and be able to discern rightly the state of our hearts and the content of what Christ teaches. We ask these things in his name. Amen. My wife, Samantha, and I have four children, all under the age of five. And we drove with those four children, all under the age of five, to North Carolina a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was a long drive. <laughs> it took three days to get there. Uh, we almost did not go. <laughs> because we knew that the drive was going to be a significant challenge. Three days in the car for the children, indeed for everyone, seemed like a lot to ask. Indeed, of everyone. <laughs> Ultimately, we did decide to go. We went to be with family. We went to enjoy the good gift of rest. We went to enjoy the loveliness of God's creation there on the shores of North Carolina. The warmth of sun, the sound of waves, the feel of water. Such excellent gifts. We went because we counted the cost. In our evaluation, the way was going to be hard, but oh, the end was going to be worth it. We believed that the end of the difficult journey was going to make the difficulty of that journey worth it, and so we embarked. The children did remarkably well. I did the poorest. <laughs> Our Lord brings the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount to a close, and he now calls for a decisive moment. He says, come with me. Follow me. You've heard that it's not going to be an easy journey. It begins with poverty and ends in persecution. It summons to truth and love in a deceitful and cruel world. It forces us to grapple with our sinfully impoverished and relentlessly distrusting hearts. It's not an easy way, but I'm there. I'm with you. And the destination where we're going is wonderful. And perhaps we ought to start there, just at a general level. The drive we made to North Carolina was difficult. But one thing that was not difficult the entire time we were driving was remembering that we were going somewhere. That the ultimate point wasn't the car. <laughs> we had a destination. 
I assure you, no one in the car was saying, oh, if we could only stay in this car forever. Oh, if we just had this minivan as the rest of our lives. But I was also struck by the experience of other drivers on the way. We passed a number of luxury RVs while we were driving. I imagined they were having a very different experience than I was in my <laughs> minivan. <laughs> and you might be tempted in that situation. Were you in the RV? You know, this is actually pretty good. We could live like this. I don't mind if we don't arrive. There is a veritable luxury condo behind me. This is rather comfortable. In fact, I don't know that I want to leave the RV. That's part of the oddity of our lives, isn't it? We're so enmeshed in comfort that we're tempted to forget that all of it, as lovely as it is, as good as it is, is really just the porch of heaven or hell, as one pastor puts it. Or as one of our modern poets puts it, all of us are constantly standing on the brink of the next world. David sings, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. It seems that one of the dangers that face us on this journey is forgetting altogether that we're traveling. <laughs> forgetting that the journey has an end. That seems to be the light in which David is praying, isn't it? Lord, teach me to remember that I'm impermanent. Teach me to know that I only have a finite number of days. Teach me to realize that the life that I take for granted right now, the form of it, my beating heart, my breath, the shape of it is not a given. In fact, it's remarkably impermanent. Market, this isn't your experience. The flash with which time has passed. You were once a child. Some of you now are 70, 80 plus. The swiftness with which time passes is but a testimony of our impermanence. Because I assure you that the time that is passing is not bringing us closer to biological life. As your aches and your pains abundantly testify. And yet we confuse our situation in thinking that this is permanent. Beloved, pray this prayer. Ask the Lord that he would teach you to see aright that your days are numbered, that this part of the story will end, and it will open up into a more permanent state of affairs. That's sobering, isn't it? David prays and teaches us how to pray. The Lord teaches us here to consider that the journey does have an end. 
But he also sets himself forth as a true and a sure guide, not just through this life, but into the next, into the halls of life, as it were. You can feel how humbling this is. We're impermanent. We're here a moment, gone the next. We certainly don't have the wherewithal to make that great transition from this stage of the journey into the land of impermanence. What must I do to be a competent traveler? The Lord Jesus Christ says, come to me. I know the way. I am the way. That's what he stands before us saying, come to me. But Mark, first, what what do you hear when I tell you the God-inspired truth that the journey of your life will end? What do you hear in that? Have you become so comfortable in your RV that you dread hearing it? Or perhaps you know that not all is well between your soul and your maker. So the thought of entering into that mystery, the beyond standing before him as is the testimony of Scripture, is deeply unsettling to you. Mark that the answer to both difficulties is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the glimpse of the ocean and the sun, reminding us that even in an RV, the end is better for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, mark that he is the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of life necessary to enter into the Holy Father's halls of glory. The one who has come to make peace between God and man, such that even the day of death need not trouble the one who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it becomes a homecoming in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one receives the Father's welcome. But I hope you can hear him standing before you saying, enter, which is really just another variation of him standing before you saying, come to me. Come to me to embark on this difficult way, which leads to life. That's the second observation. If the first observation is that the journey must end and you must grapple with that, the second observation is there's only two paths and there's only two ends. You can know right off the bat that Jesus has zero problems making exclusive claims. We're very uncomfortable with exclusive claims, right? And the current cultural moment fosters a sort of legitimacy to every single thought, every single opinion. Every single claim has just as much of a viable claim upon truth as every other single claim. Not so with our Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He says there's one way that leads to life. He says essentially the same thing in John's gospel, except he presents himself as that way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not all roads lead to the Father. There's one way that leads to the Father. You cannot obtain life by being a good person. 
You cannot obtain life by being generally religious or spiritual. No other religion possesses the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these ways are really just variations on the broad way that leads to death. Jesus cares too much about humanity to allow them to persist in this delusion. So he says, I am the way. The only way to come to the Father is by coming to me in true faith. This is an exclusive claim. Just mark at a philosophical level, though, that the problem with an exclusive claim is not that it is exclusive. Rather, an exclusive claim is only a problem if it is not true. There's nothing inherently wrong with an exclusive claim. Water is exclusive. Sleep is exclusive. Food is exclusive. Light is exclusive. If you don't drink water, you'll die. Exclusive claim. <laughs> if you don't have light, you can't see. Exclusive claim. Imagine the absurdity of all people rising up to rebel against water, saying, I won't drink water because it's the only way to live. I reject light because it's the only way to see. It's absurd, isn't it? And yet, Mark, how many protest Christ on those very grounds? I won't have him because he's the only way. It's pure folly. Better to ask, is it true? Is the claim true? Not is it fair, according to my distorted and fallen and foolish capacity to evaluate, but is it true? Beloved, that's why God has given us his word. In no small part, that's why we have four gospel testimonies. Sure testimony. This is the very reason John tells us he wrote his gospel. John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How do I know that the claims of Christ are true? You hear the testimony about who he was given to us, kept for us, preserved for us, recorded for us. Hey, this is what he did. We saw it. Hey, this is what he taught. We heard him. This guy was blind. Then Christ touched him. Now he sees. That's remarkable. There he was walking on the waves, just like the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So Christ tread upon the waves. He met us there in the middle of that Galilean lake where we were sure to die. And then he said, shh, and everything stopped. I think I conflated two narratives there, but you get the point. <laughs> they say we saw these things, we witnessed these things, and Jesus then says to them, Go, be my witnesses. The whole of human history is a grand trial. Christ is adducing these witnesses to show that He is who He says He is, and that means you are who He says you are. Better to ask that question then do I like that he's exclusive? 
Is he who he says he is, the Son of God, the Savior? Are you who he says you are, a sinner? At enmity with your maker, more interested in this clay clod and its fading glory than knowing the true and living God? That's the better question, beloved. The answer is here. Pray that the Lord gives you the eyes to see. Related to the exclusivity of this claim is the observation that this is an either-or about the two paths. There's a wide gate, a comfortable way, which leads unto destruction. There's a narrow gate and an uncomfortable way, which leads to death. There's no third option here. There's no middle way. There's no shades of gray. The Lord says in the final analysis, there are two paths, two ends, and every single one who has ever lived is on one of these two paths. That's sobering, isn't it? You hear how sobering that is? But beloved, this is sobering not primarily because the people you know and love are on one of these two paths. This is sobering because you are on one of these two paths. This is not an invitation for you to invite. This is not an invitation for you to evaluate the path everyone in your life is on. This is a call for you first and foremost to ask, which path am I on? He's talking to you. It's amazing, isn't it, how easily we hear the voice of our Lord on behalf of others? Like, man, if they only heard this, my life would be a lot easier. He's talking to you, but he addresses you. Your Lord, the Lord of glory. Your maker, the maker of heaven and earth. He's talking to you right now. The Lord has issued this call to a mixed crowd. There's disciples and the masses alike who have gathered to hear him. Mark that there's nothing wrong with us periodically as Christians to ask, am I on the narrow way? There's nothing wrong with that. Scripture prompts us to do that very thing, doesn't it? We need not shy away from it. We need not get offended by it. Now, there is a sense that if you're only ever asking that question obsessively, neurotically, that that would be an indication that health is not regnant. The things are not well. If I were driving, my family just constantly staring at the GPS. Am I on the right way? Am I, is this the right road? Is this the right road? I'd be endangering myself and others. You could switch metaphors a little bit. If I insisted on going to the doctor every single day of my life, I would, in a sense, be refusing to live, to exercise the health that I experientially find out I have by living. <laughs> But to ask the question in earnest, which Scripture prompts us to ask, he prompts you to ask right now, which way am I on? There's only two ways. There's only two ends. But mark also that the Lord is calling to the narrow way. And by the descriptors he gives here and elsewhere in Scripture, we can conclude that he wants us to know that we're on the way. Meaning he delights to assure us that we are bearing towards life. 
The earnest grappling with those questions is not intended to drive us to despair, but it's intended to bring us and keep us on the way, bearing towards life. Everybody needs signs to get where they're going. I guess this is less pertinent now that we have our GPS. Everybody needs indicators that, no, no, this is the way. Yep, North Carolina, keep going that way. That's what the Lord gives here. He gives signs, descriptors of how to know which way you're on and thus how to get a sense of the end to which you're moving. So you can mark here that he gives two warnings. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Jesus says the gate is wide, easy, and it's headed toward destruction. So that's the first sign. Is the way easy? (laughs) Is your way easy? The image here is plainly of a broad and flat and well-traveled, well-protected road. As such, it's filled with people all going in the same general direction. Now, the odd part is that Jesus says, beware this road. I say odd because in the actual experience of everyone listening, these would have been the safest roads to travel. These would have been the roads that led to the cities where the protection of the kings of earth was to be found. These roads were built by the kings of earth. These roads were guarded by the kings of earth. These roads led to the centers of the power of the kings of earth. Jesus says, beware. These roads are easy, but they're not safe. It would seem best then to understand this ease not in terms of the actual circumstances of wealth and comfort, although that may be the case. But rather at a higher level, the question is, are you at ease with the world? Are you at ease with your sin? Are you comfortable with the things of the world, its goals, its goods? Are you comfortable with the sinful manner of life that attends the pursuit of the world's comforts? Jesus has already said life is more than. Life is more than bread. Life is more than clothing. Life is more than money, fame, power, pleasure. Life is more. The world is pursuing those things. Mark, if that doesn't characterize the heart of almost every single life that has ever been lived. The pursuit of those things as an ultimate good. Christ says, no, God has made you for himself. To seek his kingdom. To worship and know him through me. The pursuit of the things of this earth is a road well-traveled, but it doesn't end in life. And what's so peculiar is everybody knows that. As David said, man is a mere breath. The kingdoms that have been built, which look remarkably permanent, have shown themselves in a due course of time to be incredibly impermanent. Nobody thought that the gates of Babylon would ever fall. Now they're a museum piece. There's no life behind them, beloved. Destruction filled those gates, as impressive as they looked. 
And that's the second warning. He said the way is easy ease with this world seems easy going with the masses seems easy seeking the same things that everybody else is seeking seems easy but mark the end it's destruction beloved. Nebuchadnezzar could no more stand against God than any other mortal man. When judgment came, Babylon fell. The same was true for Nineveh. Ashurbanipal was a remarkable king as far as this world goes in terms of the scope of his empire, and it's gone. He could no more stand against God than an ant can protest the foot of a human. The judgment of the Lord is too weighty, too powerful, too pure, too righteous to be withstood. Jesus gives a sober warning here. It's a severe warning. It ends in destruction. He's talking about eternal perdition. He's talking about the reality of hell. Read Matthew's gospel. Jesus speaks of hell quite frequently. Matthew 13. 24, 25, Matthew 8. He speaks of it in terrible terms, a place of darkness, a place of weeping, a place of gnashing of teeth, the place of fire, the ending place of devils and monsters. But it's not bandied about in cruelty here. Do you hear it? He says, enter the narrow way because this is the end of the other way. It's a warning issued in earnest concern for travelers who would fall to man standing at the edge of a road that is plunging into ruin saying, hey, there's destruction at the end of this. Once more, mark the folly of our hearts. We object over the doctrine of hell based upon its repugnance to us. We don't ask, is it true? Because if it's true, the declaration of it can and has been and continues to be Don't go that way. Stop. You need not end like that. I'm here. I am the way. I am the life. Turn to me and be saved. Why will you die in your sin? It's a potentially life-giving warning that he ushers forth here. But it isn't just warnings that he gives. It's also encouragements. He closes, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You can mark just first how counterintuitive this is. Mark if we don't think in our minds, no, 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 ease is life. Comfort is life. Those are the signs of life. But Jesus has already prepared us for this counterintuitive situation. Blessed are the mourners, for that's the way to comfort. Blessed are the hungry, for that's the way to satisfaction. Blessed are the persecuted, for that's the way to inherit the kingdom. It is the hard way that leads to life. We recoil from that. It's difficult for us to get our minds around this path to life, is it not? But there's a sense in which we know this to be true once more, even just drawing from the common realm of physical experience. Once upon a time, it was hard lives.
lives that produced strong and resilient bodies. Now we have to manufacture hard lives in gyms and on tracks. And why do we do this? Not to die, but to thrive, to nurture life, to live to gain in strength and resilience life and the tenacity of life. But it's hard, isn't it? Dying is easy. Living is harder, George Washington said to Alexander Hamilton in the hit Broadway musical Hamilton. (laughs) And that's true for us physically. We've said before, Netflix and Cheetos is easy. Training and nutrition is harder. Only one of them leads to life. So what's true in a physical domain, what seems to be ingrained into the very fabric of the cosmos, that resistance somehow produces a vitality. Jesus says it's also true in the spiritual sense, that it's not ease that produces life. It's difficulty that produces life. The word for narrow there is also the word for affliction. It means to be hard-pressed. It means to be afflicted. It means to experience difficulty. So one difficulty for us is just getting our minds around this at a conceptual level. Wait a minute, i got to die to live. i got to press on this hard path to live. The second difficulty is actually pressing on that hard path, isn't it? Even if you can mark at a conceptual level, yeah, it's better for me to go for a run than to binge on Netflix and Cheetos. You still got to do it. (laughs) The battle's only half won, but once more, it's Christ here saying, come, let's walk together because the difficulty of the path which I am laying out for you is the very one I walked as a man of sorrows. As one who knew hunger, as one who knew persecution, saying, come with me. It's not a path we walk on our own. It's a path which Christ calls us to, and because he is God incarnate, every call of God comes with the supply equipping the recipient of that call. But it's difficult, is it not? It's easier to disbelieve than to believe. It's easier to doubt than to trust. It's easier to indulge the flesh than to fight about, than to fight it. It's easier to downplay and explain away your sin than owning it before the true and living God. It's easier to give up than to endure. It's easier to perform for men we can see than to stand in earnest before God we cannot see. It's hard to trust, isn't it? It's hard to seek the things above. It's hard to declare not once, but with an entire life, Jesus Christ is Lord. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I am his. The way is hard that leads to life, and few there are who find it. You have the added difficulty that chances are you're going to find yourself relatively alone doing all of these things. I think the word Peloton means group, doesn't it? Somebody, yeah. It's just easier to run in a group. 
It's almost like momentum is given to you. Mm. To do something alone is harder. Now again, mark that the man who did this alone is not you or me at the end of the day. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. For he was the one who walked the path of righteousness to its terrible end when all betrayed or abandoned him. He is the Psalm 1 man. There's a striking juxtaposition between the lone man and the mass of wicked. And that contrast is only reversed at the end of the psalm where the collection of the saints then comes on to the stage and the individual finds that, oh, I wasn't alone. I'm not alone. The Lord Jesus Christ, walking it alone, did not walk it to remain alone, but to bring many sons to glory. To be the author and the finisher of our faith. Such that our walking and completing this journey resounds to the glory of the author and the finisher who saw us through on this dreadfully difficult road. But mark the sort of sneaky encouragement that comes from this statement. Narrow is the way. Difficult is the way. He does not say, hey, if the Christian life comes easy to you, hey, if if faith, hope, and love come easy to you, you're on the way of life. He says, if you find yourself enmeshed in difficulty concerning these things, you're on the way of life. None of you are weeping, so I don't know that that's landed, because that's remarkably encouraging. We tend to think that the Christian life is this glorious striding, this Olympic pace where bodies are demonstrating their beauty and their majesty, and every stride is worthy of the cover of Sports Illustrated. It's not, it's ugly weekend joggers clawing for every next step. That's the Christian life. He says, if that's your experience, rejoice. You're on the way of life, beloved. There's encouragement to be found in the difficulty of matters of faith and hope and love and following after the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the brutality of physical exercise which gives us a better glimpse into the difficulty of the Christian life. It's not yet lemonade on sandy beaches. We fight for these things with the same tenacity of a runner, a boxer, a soldier looking to the author and the finisher. Now, don't get me wrong. We know something of the comfort. We've tasted something of the satisfaction. We've glimpsed the excellencies by faith. But our true encouragement comes in marking the difficulty and knowing that the end will bring relief. And there's comfort in that, if you can hear it. Are you fighting your sin? I hope so, and I hope it's hard. Hang in there. Continue to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's harder to persist than it is to give up. He says the way is hard that leads to life. And he is the way and the life, beloved. So we ought not to forget the reason for our present difficulties. 
If the broad way that led to the city in people's experience was the way of the kings of earth, and that way led to the cities of earth, the narrow way in people's experience were hacked out by criminals and led to the dens of criminals. You can feel how Jesus takes this and flips it on his head. The kings of earth make highways to their cities and say, come, we'll protect you. Come, we'll provide for you. The kings of earth have pronounced upon the true king in his way that he's an imposter, a criminal, and following him leads to the cross. Jesus says, come to me. They will not know you if you come to me. Your life will be difficult if you come to me. But we will be together, you and me. I with you, you with me, we with my Father. For this is why he has sent me. Hebrews 13. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go out to him and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Beloved, the criminal's den of the cross has become our refuge and our strength. The empty tomb of the third day is our sure foundation that Christ has conquered this earth, the kings of this earth, and the ruler of death who continues to hold it in its grip. Beloved, the way is hard that leads to life. The Lord Jesus Christ is that way. He says to you this day, come to me, follow me, and we will live. Join me in prayer. Our great God, once more we give you thanks for your word and ask that you would attend it with your blessing, granting us the ears to hear what is good and true and beautiful, that you might feed us in our faith, our confidence that Jesus Christ has conquered the goodness of your word, Lord, and all of its wisdom. Feed us on this, Lord, and be pleased to magnify yourself as Christ continues to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. For we ask in his name, amen.